listeners. Welcome to Grief Out Loud. Remember the last time you tried to talk about grief and suddenly everybody left the room? Grief Out Loud is opening up this often avoided conversation because grief is hard enough without having to go through it alone. We bring you a mix of personal stories, tips for supporting children, teens, and yourself, and interviews with professionals in the grief world. Platitude and cliche-free, we promise. Grief Out Loud is hosted by me, Jana DeCristofero, and produced by Dougie Center, the National Grief Center for Children and Families in Portland, Oregon. Welcome to 2024, listeners. I'm hoping that your shift from last year to this one went as well as it could. If you've been a listener for a while, you know that most of our episodes center personal narratives of grief. We're going to stick with that this year, and, but, for the month of January, we're doing something just a little different. All four episodes this month will be conversations with professionals in the field. It will be academic, but not too much, I promise, as each of them talks about their work in a really accessible way. Three of the episodes will be with my direct colleagues, Dr. Donna Sherman, Dr. Monique Mitchell, and Satkar Khalsa. Donna and Monique outline what it means to be grief-informed, Satkar will share her extensive experience working with preschoolers, and then Donna will be back to discuss the dangers of pathologizing grief. So that's what's coming later this month. And don't worry, there'll be personal aspects of grief woven into each episode. To kick off this month's quote-unquote grief school, I talked with Janila McIntosh about her research and work in the realm of Black and African American grief. Danila is a doctoral student at the University of Minnesota in Family Social Science with an emphasis in marriage and family therapy. Danila has a Master of Divinity in Theological Studies and a Master of Arts in Counseling Psychology. Prior to becoming a psychotherapist, she worked as a chaplain for nearly 10 years. Danila's research explores the intersections of disenfranchised grief among African-American families, particularly in the aftermath of violent death. I know, it sounds like we're about to enter a statistics class, but Danila is amazing at explaining her work in a way that everyone can understand. In those explanations, she also offers tangible information about what it looks like to provide grief support that is culturally attuned and relevant. And because it's grief out loud, she also shares about the recent death of her grandfather and how she and her family are finding support and strength in honoring his legacy. Danila, thank you for taking time out of what I imagine is a uh, really busy schedule to talk with me today for Grief Out Loud. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for having me. And you're a researcher and researcher is, I mean, research is never simple. As try as I might to read peer-reviewed articles, I'm always like, what is happening? <laughs> so <laughs> I'm wondering, though, can you give a short overview of like, what's your most current work? Yeah, absolutely. So let's address this a bit broadly first. Okay. So broadly, what we know about grief is that it is a normative response and experience of losing a loved one. Uh, And we know that, for example, the death of a child can have a negative impact on parents, uh, sometimes even leading couples to separate and in some cases, even divorce. Um, We also know that death within a family can leave a family decimated in the wake of the death and can fragment the relationships within the family, 
um, and impact the life trajectory of the individuals and the family. So that's why we support kids through their grieving experiences, because we know the research says uh, that uh, the death of a parent, for example, or a sibling can drastically impact uh, their life trajectory. So take that like broad information and just imagine, uh, imagine that before the age of 10, you are four times more likely than any of your classmates to experience the death of a parent or a sibling. And then compound that with the reality that uh, from the time that you are 10, over the course of the rest of your life, you are more likely than your classmates and then your work colleagues to experience the death of a parent, of your own child, uh, of your spouse, of close family, friends, uh, and immediate family members. And in some ways, you are living under the constant threat of death. That uh, is, in a nutshell, of what it means to be Black in the U.S. context. Uh, that death is not ahead um, as like the inevitable end of a long life, but that death is your life literally lived in the presence. And that, uh, I think, in a nutshell, captures my research. Uh, that my research is centered on understanding the impact of death and dying and grief and loss on Black families and the ways that Black families cope and navigate the multitude uh, of death and loss and grieving experiences over the course of their lives. And I imagine for most people who get into research, there may be some type of personal connection or an experience that led them to really focus on this particular realm. And I'm wondering what that is for you. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so when I graduated from seminary, I completed a unit of CPE, or clinical pastoral education, right, which is essentially specialized uh, professional education for chaplains. And one day, uh, my chaplaincy supervisor and I were asked to join a conference where a medical team wanted to tell a family um, whose teenager had been shot uh, and had been on life support at this time for several weeks that there was nothing left that the medical team could do. And they wanted to recommend to the family uh, that the family make the decision to turn off the life support machines. Now, I'm not entirely sure where the miscommunication occurred, but it was very apparent that this African-American family entered into the hospital anticipating good news. They came in with balloons and flowers, uh, and you could literally feel the excitement and the energy among this family. Um, and if you know anything about uh, African-American families, then you know that the whole family came, right? So we're talking parents, grandparents, aunts, uncles, siblings, uh, the teenagers, friends, uh, family by blood and family by choice. And as the doctors begin to say, I'm sorry, there is nothing less that we can do. There was an eruption of wailing and crying and sobbing that filled this very small hospital conference room. And just as the family is beginning to grapple with the reality uh, that their beloved teenager would not be returning home, the door of the conference room swings open uh, and in walks two hospital security guards and two police officers because a nurse at the nurse's station called for hospital security for fear that the doctor's lives were in danger. And this would be the first of what would become many uh, experiences of what I would call the desecration of sacred Black bereavement space. And this story and many others are my reason why 
uh, both uh, seeing it as a professional and personally. Uh, this has led to my decision to return back to school and to be begin doing research on the realities of Black grief and bereavement. And from that origin point of being with that family, of watching them begin to reckon with the reality that their teenage family member was not going to live, and then to see that reaction of the security guards come in, how did that impact you? Yeah, for me, it was really difficult, right? Uh, because in some ways, I'm watching this family uh, in the very beginning throes of their grief. And then I'm watching as they're having to also simultaneously de-escalate the situation and prove in some ways that they weren't actually a threat. And it reminded me of the ways in which, as an African-American woman, I have also had to simultaneously hold my grief um, and control my grief in order to placate those around me and help them to understand that I'm not a threat, that the anger that I feel, which is a normative response to grief, is not uh, a threat, and to ensure that I'm constantly not being perceived as a threat. And so it was weird, right? Like an out-of-body experience, experience, both watching a family go through this and also feeling simultaneously uh, like it reflected my own experience. There was a, a deep sense of familiarity. Absolutely. Absolutely. I imagine this might take eight hours to answer. So, <laughs> but I'm wondering, you know, what what is your sense both as a researcher and as an African-American woman walking around in the United States? Like, what are the determinants of both, as you mentioned, like being an African-American child, you're so much more likely to experience death than your white counterparts. And to have that reaction from the medical community, and I imagine from many other service providers, uh, of not being at all in alignment with recognizing, making space for acknowledging, honoring Black grief. Like, what is your sense of that? Yeah, I would say that, you know, I often hear people say that grief is the great equalizer, right? Meaning that grief is the universal experience that every human being will experience grief throughout their lives. And I would say, yes, right, absolutely. We all experience grief. And uh, there are also societal factors that directly impact Black families, uh, which lead to the disproportionate reality of death and loss. And I think that we are culturally illiterate, contextually illiterate to um, the factors that contribute to the disproportionate reality of Black death and grief. And that this contributes to what we would say the further disenfranchisement of grief among African-Americans. And there are a whole host of, I think, tangible examples of that. So I will present it in, in a nutshell, okay, uh, when I talk about the disproportionate reality of Black death, because this is actually the probably the most frequent question uh, that I get um, is, what do you mean when you say that? And essentially what I mean by that is that what we know in terms, in terms of research is that African-Americans are disproportionately impacted by homicide. African-Americans comprise only 13% of the U.S. population, but they are essentially comprise 50% of homicide rates in the U.S. over the last 40 years. Tangibly, the leading cause of death for an African-American male under the age of 44 is homicide. African-Americans are also disproportionately impacted by death after police contact. And in the last four years, 
we have seen a 78% rate increase in suicide rates among young Black males, making it the largest rate increase of any other racial group in the U.S. Then compound that with the reality that African-Americans are also disproportionately impacted by hate crimes. So, for example, the Charleston Nine or the Buffalo shooting that occurred in 2022, I believe. And so what I have noticed is that there is a lack of literacy regarding this reality and the contextual reality uh, that Black families often experience the multiplicity, the multitude of death in their families. You know, Danielle, I'm struck by when you said that's the question people ask you the most. Mm-hmm. And and I what I hear under that a bit of is people asking you, like, prove it. Yeah. And I wonder what that's like for you to feel like you're in that position. It makes me think of what you said of like, I'm grieving. And now not only do I have to control my grief, I have to control the environment in which I'm grieving. So there might be some space for me to grieve without being perceived as a threat. And I wonder for you as a researcher, you're out in the world, you're giving presentations, like, how does that impact you? Yeah, absolutely. I do have to prove it. And I, I once heard a scholar say that uh, it framed it in this way, the, stru- the structural, what did they say? The structural pandemic of racism requires that the magnitude of Black grief and loss be lulled into the very fabric of American society. Uh, and I would say that is quite literally my experience personally and also professionally. Um, that I think that this is a tangible way in which structural racism impacts the lives of African-Americans, that you have to prove with numbers that we are disproportionately dying. And that the way the the sort of factors that contribute to the multiplicity of our death are rooted in racism um, and can actually be changed. And so that's a hard part, uh, I think, of this conversation is that I feel like I'm constantly having to prove we're not talking about genetic weaknesses. What we're talking about, uh, sort of the vector of disease is racism. Uh, and because we don't address that, we are leaving families and communities vulnerable to the decimation of death and grief. Yeah, sitting in that place of it's not faded. That's correct that there are things that could be changed and altered to decrease the rates of death. And alongside of that, making space for the grief that comes. That's right. Of that. And and you mentioned the term, the disenfranchised grief yeah. in the African-American community. And disenfranchised grief is a term that's been around for a while. It means different things to different people. So I'm curious for you from this kind of context, what what do you mean when you say disenfranchised grief? Yeah, so disenfranchised grief is a term, you're correct, it's been around for a while, uh, coined by Dr. Kendoka. And essentially, it means that uh, the disenfranchisement of grief occurs when individuals experience a significant loss, and the resulting grief is socially invalidated or dismissed, right? Um, And this directly impacts the ability of the bereaved to, to, to grieve in the manner within which they need to, or they choose to without the interference of others. So a perfect example of that is that hospital story that I shared, right? Here's a family in the very beginning of throes of grieving, and now they're also having to simultaneously de-escalate the situation and prove that they're not a threat in the midst of their grief. Uh, And I think that's a tangible way of seeing the way in which grief 
and loss can be invalidated and dismissed. So I know you've, you've already kind of talked about this a bit, but I wonder what are some other ways that you see or have experienced in your research or talking with people that disenfranchisement specifically of Black and African-American grief? Yeah, absolutely. I think it goes back to what we talked about um, a few minutes ago in terms of uh, even the way that as a researcher, I have to prove the disproportionate reality of Black death. One of the aspects of this conversation, right, I talked about the reality of African-Americans disproportionately being impacted by violent death. I haven't even talked about the disproportionate reality of uh, premature mortality rates of African-Americans that are related to health disparities. The fact that we have the highest infant mortality rate, meaning that Black babies are dying before they're even reaching the age of one. The fact that we have the highest maternal mortality rate, meaning that Black women are dying uh, while they're pregnant, uh, in labor, or immediately after giving birth. Uh, We have higher rates of heart disease, cancer, diabetes. It it feels like it goes on and on and on. And what this has contributed uh, tangibly is to 1.63 million excess deaths relative to white Americans in the U.S. over the last two decades. And sort of the lack of literacy and contextual information regarding uh, the experience of Black uh, bereavement Uh, what has been dubbed as a Black bereavement crisis, I think in a tangible way that Black grief is disenfranchised because we are invalidating the loss and dismissing it uh, for a whole host of Black families. Do you find that happening? I mean, when you're talking about that, I see that as like the greater society being dismissing these, you know, disproportionate deaths, rates of death dismissing expressions of grief. Yeah. Do you find that within community as well? Yeah, that's interesting. I think that um, one of the most profound strengths of Black culture and Black communities is the way in which we support one another through grief. And I mean that tangibly. Like my grandfather just died recently, a couple of weeks ago. And the way in which the community had wrapped around my family uh, and supported us through that process is amazing. And I feel like it's a um, a staple of a lot of Black communities where we will come and support one another. It does bring up the question of like, how long are we supporting one another? Uh, but the way in which we come around each other, I think is a strength um, that helps undergird the reality of experiencing the broader societal disenfranchisement of grief. Another aspect of that question, when I think about what's what's such a high rate of death, right, and grief happening over and over and over early on in life and then throughout the lifespan, wrapping around in the immediacy, but then wondering, like, what either has been your personal experience or in the people that you've talked to through your research, what are people being taught about how to grieve, knowing that not everyone's the same and everyone's family is different and all of that. But I wonder if there's some commonalities that you've seen of like, how do we manage this cascade of grief coming our way? Yeah, absolutely. I think there's a a few ways. One of the ways that arises um, that I think about that I've heard consistently uh, with people that I have worked with, and I see this also in my own family, um, is the way in which we talk about death. 
broadly, right? Uh, and so broadly, if you, and this is, I'm going to make this a, this is a general statement. Broadly, African-Americans talk about death uh, and dying, and we refer to it as passed on, passed away, or transitioned, right? Where if you listen to a child, a teenager, an adult, essentially they're saying, my grandfather transitioned, my aunt passed on, uh, my grandmother passed away. And this is actually rooted in our ancestry as being the descendants of enslaved Africans, pointing back to the sort of epistemology, this belief that death is not the end. This is actually literally, quite literally, what I just said is what Angela Bassett says in the Black Panther movie when King T'Challa dies. She says, for we know that death is not the end. And that is a staple, I think, of uh, Black culture is this belief that when you die, you transition into this realm, the realm of the ancestors, and that this then becomes a way in which you have an opportunity to connect to your loved one that has passed away. Uh, and that can build sort of resiliency through the grieving process. I will also say um, that it is also not uncommon among African-American families that I have worked with to also be in that process of um, struggling to grieve and not taking the time that they may need to experience that grief. And I think there's that that weird sort of uh, dichotomy between both believing that death is not the end and having the ability to still uh, connect with our loved one and also not necessarily taking out the time to do so. Well, and I imagine there's so many things that can lead into that not taking the time, which is not literally having the time. Absolutely. I think about the the space to grieve being quite a economically resource-laden privilege in a way, right, to even like, have that space, literally have the time. And then also to make the emotional space of if there are the sense of grieving, you know, one person at a time, maybe there's some space, but if it's like a whole host of people, it's very hard to, to even begin that process. That's right. Absolutely. Is there anything else you would want to share about this idea that the experience of Black grief, specifically here in the U.S., is both unique and then also nuanced. I would say that one of the things that stands out to me, and I'm gonna I'm gonna answer this from the perspective of a researcher. Okay, one of the things that stands out for me in terms of um, the aspect of black death and uh, dying and grief and loss is that there is a wide gap in the literature, specifically focusing on African Americans and their death and dying experience. Uh, that is not necessarily the same broadly across the spectrum of thanatology, meaning uh, sort of the area, the field that specializes and focuses on death and dying. And this is actually really important to me as a researcher. And I also would say that this is important to us as a field, because the more research we have, the more interventions we have. And the more research we have, the more that we understand the dynamics. Um, and I think that that contributes, again, to this com broader conversation of uh, racism and the disenfranchisement of Black grief. Um, but more tangibly, it also impacts the way in which we as grief support specialists uh, and organizations also attune to Black families that we may be supporting through the process. 
Yeah, you've you've written about this idea of culturally attuned interventions. And in this context, we're talking about culturally attuned interventions for supporting grief, even though there are likely many needed interventions in terms of addressing the cause of the increased rates of grief in black families. But in this specific piece of like the grief, what are some examples of those culturally attuned interventions for supporting grief? Yeah, absolutely. So let me let me answer it this way. Let me first address why um, not having culturally attuned interventions is actually so impactful tangibly for for families. So um, I just I gave the example of sort of this cultural phenomenon among African American families um, to refer to death as passed on, passed away, or transitioned. Right. Um, one of the one of the things that I have seen tangibly among grief organizations and grief support personnel is something that's rooted in research, right? Is this desire to increase and advance grief literacy, uh, particularly among children. Okay. And one of the ways that we do this is we get children to talk openly, authentically, transparently about death. Tangibly, a lot of deliverables for organizations are centered on this idea of being able to explicitly say, my mom died, my cousin died. But if you know Black culture and you understand kind of sort of the cultural reality of what it means to say passed on and passed away. uh, But I think in a lot of ways by us forcing children, especially African-American children, to say that my loved one has died, rather than acknowledging the cultural significance of saying that my loved one has passed away, we could be inherently invalidating or dismissing salient cultural definitions that actually support resiliency through the grieving process. And so that's why it is important that we become culturally attuned so that we can effectively address this. So that's actually a culturally attuned intervention (laughs) strategy is to utilize the language um, that has cultural, um, salient cultural values to help support the grieving process. I'm taking a little pause just because, you know, Dougie Center has been so rooted in talking with kids about dead or died uh, from a perspective of ensuring that kids aren't confused, right? Especially young kids can feel very like, what does passed on mean? And so I'm imagining now using more of the language of like, when someone passes, that means their body stops working, their heart stops working. There's a way to integrate both the tangible information for kids and utilize the language that is helpful and and powerful in their family. That's right. It makes me think again of how important it is to talk to people and find yes. out what is the language that works for you, knowing that not every child from a particular culture is family That's is right. going to have that particular language. Are there other ways that you, I'm thinking more about like young adults and adults? Yeah, one of one of the way one of the strategies that I often employ with people that I'm working with and that I have really been advocating for as I um, travel around and present on this topic is something that's called a positive reappraisals. Um, and I'm using sort of the heavy psychological jargon, right? Because that's <laughs> not what we would maybe actually say when we're working with people. Uh, but positive reappraisals is this idea that you take. Um, that you take a very bad situation or scenario uh, and you begin to think about the ways you spin it in a positive way, 
Okay. Now take what I'm saying with a grain of salt, because when I'm talking about death and dying in the context of uh, bereavement and grief, you may be thinking, why the heck would I spend this positively? Ironically, positive reappraisals is very consistent in African-American culture. Okay. I mean, we, I can, we can literally track this uh, even to enslavement times and the way in which uh, enslaved Africans would talk about certain realities, not slavery perhaps specifically, but certain, re, um, certain experiences in order to cultivate a sense of resilience to continue to push for their freedom. Okay. This is rooted in African-American culture in the U.S. A way that that is translated tangibly is you will often find uh, young adults and adults uh, talking about the loss of their loved one as this example of positive reappraisal. God needed another angel. So God took my loved one from me. Right now, as a seminary trained uh, person with a background, I don't see evidence for that right in the Christian Bible. However, my personal opinion about it doesn't actually matter if this is a process that I identify that is culturally salient that can build uh, resiliency and also support the grieving process. And so that's an example of a culturally um, attuned intervention. It brings me back to this idea, because I can just imagine that, say that plays out in a grief support group or a family barbecue <laughs> where somebody says, you know, they... They needed another, God needed another angel. They took our uncle from us. And there's 20 people there. And that might really resonate for half the people there. And there might be half the people there who are like, that does not feel accurate at all. I know that's, that's right. what's been passed down to me through my culture, but like, as an individual, that is not connecting for me. And so just again, going back to, like you said, it doesn't really matter what we personally think. What matters is what feels accurate and supportive for the person who's experiencing it. And that can cause some tension within a family dynamic or a, a community dynamic as well. Absolutely. It can absolutely create um, some difficulties in navigating it. And so part of our role as health professionals is also um, to stand in the place of helping to balance that anxiety of it, right? So I often communicate to families when I work with families that are grieving, is this is a meaning-making process that is deeply personal and individual as well as familial and cultural. And all of these elements come into play as we're navigating through this process that my life will never be the same because my loved one is no longer here. And that looks different, right? So I pull away from this idea of the stages of grief, the levels of grief, whatever that is. And I really do sit steeped in the meaning making process. Um, and how do we internalize and cope with the grief over time? I feel like our whole conversation has been an answer to this question, <laughs> but okay. uh, I'm thinking about this idea of like, you know, your sense of how racism impacts and shapes grief and also culture. And that I'm thinking more about the interplay of that the grief expression can start to look like culture and culture can inform grief expression. So just wondering if there's anything more about that you wanted to say. Yeah, I think when we talk about grief expression and culture, just the way that you stated that, Jana, what it makes me think about is the like wailing is what comes to my mind. And it wasn't, it was something that I think is really important to normalize is that wailing is a normative response within African-American communities to the death of a loved one. And the way in which 
Um, this actually goes right to our definition of disenfranchised grief, the way in which we invalidate that, or because it's not a normative sort of, in, in air quotes, normative grief response that we're um, accustomed to, uh, the ways in which we minimize that and don't see the significance of that. To your point, racism impacts and shapes grief, um, and it shapes and impacts culture, um, and it can leave a very lasting impact on individuals, and it can also leave a lasting impact on families. In this moment, 2023, what's feeling like the most important part of your work? Yeah, that is a fantastic and very difficult question to answer. <laughs> I like to save the hard ones for the last. <laughs> Um, you know, researchers do a lot of research um, and we churn a lot of papers to your point. There are like just volumes of academic papers that are hard to read through, hard to understand, um, and really in some ways are only really meant for other researchers. Uh, and so for me, what feels like the most important part of my work right now in this moment is that everything that I research, everything that I do, um, I want it to be practical and, and, and applicable to the everyday lives of people who are navigating grief and loss. And I want my work to be compelling enough um, that it allows uh, people at any point of their entry uh, to be able to connect with it and apply it. So that's what's important to me. Whatever the content is, is making sure that is uh, usable yes. for people who are are being talked about in the research, not just for other researchers, to create more research studies based on the research That's right. that you did. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> Is there a way in which this work that you've been doing has changed or altered in some way your own relationship to grief? Yeah, I will be very transparent in saying that I was illiterate in a lot of the sort of context of Black grief in the U.S., both historically and currently. Um, and when I began to sort of build up my own research, it has drastically impacted uh, my own life, I think, and my perception of grief, right? So I mentioned my grandfather passed away um, a couple of weeks ago. And what I have noticed is that uh, as a researcher, I'm versed in all of the, we don't take enough time to grieve, these are the stages, all of that. But what I have uh, noticed is what has been super salient for me has been utilizing my own cultural lens to help me navigate my grief and loss. And it has shaped my perspective in seeing how there are these cultural strengths that I have that I may not have even necessarily recognized that has really undergirded me and has also supported uh, my family. And so it's not that I'm perfect. It's not that I don't have terrible days, um, but it has also compelled me to take the time to actually sit and be present to my grief. Um, and I've come to realize you don't have to have, right? Eight hours in the day to take out that time um, and to acknowledge it and to honor my grandfather, my grandmother who passed away a couple of years ago. Uh, and that has been really healing for me, really healing for me. Are there particular ways you've found to take those maybe small pauses to honor him? 
Yeah. So um, my my family and I, my husband and my kids, what we have been doing um, is we like instituted um, a commemoration ritual where we come together and we talk about our favorite memories of uh, my grandfather. What do we remember? Uh, what do we love? Uh, the way in which my grandfather always smelled like tobacco, right? And how that like filtered on our bodies. Uh, and that has been really healing to just come together as a family and talk about that and his legacy, the way that his life has directly impacted ours and how we hope to continue his legacy in the future. I'm sitting with this terminology of, you know, this idea that if your grandfather has passed on, but it's not a binary, right? It's not no longer here, no longer here physically, but what are the ways in which his memory, his contributions continue to inform the way you and your kids talk to each other or just the the bigger picture of that? Yeah. And that's how we communicated in my house. We talk about granddad. That's just what I told my kids. Your grandfather transitioned, right? And what does that transition mean? It means that death is not the end uh, and that we have still have this ability, this access to granddad, not only just in the memories and the stories we tell, but the way in which his life and what it is that he did within his life is embedded in our very DNA. And we can take that and continue on that legacy that he gave us. I'm just in this moment really appreciating the, I don't know the exact words to express this, but sometimes when I hear people talk about like carrying on the legacy of the person who has died, it comes, it feels very like almost burdensome. And they're like, I have to do these things because this is what this person would want versus like this person's legacy is embedded completely throughout us because they were a part of our lives. And there's a way they can come with us in the things that we do that it can feel more open in a way. That's right. Absolutely. I like that. Well, Daniela, thank you for taking time to, you know, really get into the the details of your research well, as much as we can on a podcast, right? <laughs> so we're not going to yeah. be reading through the journal articles, but I appreciate you taking the time to like explain that piece to us and also to bring so much of your personal experience uh, into this work, but into this conversation with me today. Um, feeling yeah, grateful for your time and grateful for the work that you're doing. Yeah. Thank you for having me again. Before we sign off, is there any place if people want to like keep track of where you're going to be presenting next or uh, where the direction your work is going in? Is there some place I can direct people to? Yeah. Um, well, I don't necessarily want everyone trying to pull up articles and get through the jargon, but what I, <laughs> <laughs> uh, what I will say um, is that Probably the best way to connect with me is on social media. I have an Instagram account um, and it's my name, Daniela, um, I think underscore Macintosh. And that's a way to connect with some of the things that I'm doing. I often post where I'm going next to speak if people are interested in coming and listening. Great. Well, listeners, as always, I'll put that in the show notes. And uh, Daniela, yeah, thank you again for your time today. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. And listeners out there, you know, I say it each and every single time, but thank you for being part of the show, of our community, of making these episodes mean something out in the world. Please reach out to me if you want to connect directly. My email is griefoutloud at dougie.org. 
that's D-O-U-G-Y dot O-R-G, which is also our main website where you can find all of our information about our local programming, free downloadable resources, and the entire catalog of Grief Out Loud. I'm excited as always to share that our podcast is sponsored in part by the Chester Stefan Endowment Fund. Thanks again for listening. We hope you'll join us again next time. Thank you.